Hello, welcome to the iWord podcast. This may contain strong language. with me your host Andy Sellers uh, and my co-host uh, Connie the Aloe Vera. Um, so I'd written this whole idea about Connie uh, who's an aloe vera that I got during lockdown about being my co-host. I put her on the poster of the podcast but I never I never thought of what to say um, so there it is. Uh, it's a shame I never really thought of a good bit for it but you know that's the way things goes. Uh, well, it's been a bit of a weird week, really, um, hasn't it? Well, the, the the week that I'm recording this, uh, we're back in lockdown. Don't know if anyone heard. Um, there was an election. I don't know if anyone really paid attention to that either. Probably what everyone was doing was listening to Volume 1 of The I Word. Uh, well, lucky you, Volume 2 is being released now. Uh, this week, my guest is Naddy. Naddy Safey. She's a brilliant actor. She's a writer. She's a dramaturg. Probably the most experienced uh, person I've had on the podcast so far. She does so many things so well. And you know what? She's an even better guest. Uh, so let's get right into the episode. Hi, Natty. Hello. Hi, welcome to the I Word. <laughs> uh, this is the I Word. Do not mention the I Word. That okay. you, Under you no circumstances. About. Under no circumstances at all. If I do, can you bleep it out? Uh, no, because I okay. think we've done that in the other episodes. But we can do something. <laughs> we can do something. It's fine. Because uh, we were just talking, people will not be surprised that we were talking before <laughs> we just pressed record, um, about, uh, why don't you just go on what you were saying about being... Like what, what acting means to you? Because yeah. we were talking about why I started this, and then we were talking about it, put you on a train of thought. Absolutely, I was questioning what it is to be an actor, mm-hmm. and I realised last night, which is very very slow to the game actually, because I started acting in 2012, which I can't add, but I think was eight years ago, which is shocking. It was eight years ago. Yeah, shocking amount yeah. of time. I think it's the most committed I've been to anything in my whole life. Um, but for some reason, I never asked myself what is it to be an actor? Mm. And I think what I'd put in the place of that as a placeholder was being an actor is someone who goes out and pretends and comes home. Does that as a job. At the beginning I wasn't paid, but then eventually was paid. And that's what acting is, going Mm. out and acting. Now, obviously, that's slightly problematic in the age of coronavirus. Yeah. Does that mean I'm not an actor now? Because I haven't acted. For the first time, I realised that I think somewhere around May was the longest I'd not been on stage since I started in 2012 like not perform to an audience and it's been about five months since then so what what am I now am I was I an actor or is there something that's intrinsic inside us that makes us actors whether or not we get to perform or whether or not there is an audience to our art and that was where I was in my head I was going I was going bloody hell it's, I mean I know it's so deep but I was going I was going actually I've the whole this whole time I've had a really really practical idea I felt I felt really like down to earth and 
considering what I've just said and how wanky I love how you say down to earth in not a down to earth way. Down to earth way, yeah. Um, yeah, no, but I, I thought that I was like really gritty because I was born in Egypt. No one in my family ever thought that acting was an option. Mm. My family were really resistant in a lot of ways to the idea of being an actor. It was just wasn't even a, it wasn't even that they went, Nadi, you cannot be an actor, stay in your little hovel. But it was just not even an option no. because it's not a job. And so I think what I did through my youth was prove that it was a job. And by proving it was a job, I kept it as being just a job. It was, I was a handyman for the arts. I was just a craftsperson. Um, and I don't think that I really sat with the notion of being an artist because it sounds so wanky. And I didn't want to be one of those people, especially when my circles were, <laughs> again, this is really incriminating, with muggles, you know, non-magic people. <laughs> right, yeah. No, no, but like all yeah. my, my whole family are... Like, beyond working class, my Egyptian family live in a ghetto. We come from the City of the Dead, which is an enormous cemetery in the centre of Cairo City. It's just completely unfathomable that I'd be an art, like an artist. Mm. You know, we have art in our souls. Arabic is a language of poetry. Everyone's whimsical and spiritual, which is why I sound so wanky in English. But the mm. idea of being a sort of a star was just not an option. It wasn't even in the realms of possibility. Mm. And so what I think I did was sort of established that, like my uncles, are jewellers and silversmiths. I'm the craftsperson for stories or something. Like that's, I think that's the story right. I told myself mm. about me. And, um, and then it comes to a point now where I'm not getting up at six and training and then going to rehearsal and then going to a different rehearsal and then going to a different show. Am I, am I an actor? No one's seen me act in ages. And I, I re- blatantly refuse to do voices in real life because I'm like, oh, don't show off. Don't be an actor. Don't, don't, don't perform at people because that's not... They, they don't need that from you. They'll mm. buy tickets and come or mm. there'll be a street performance and it'll be under a framework that's acceptable and non-embarrassing and not up its own arse. Which is hilarious because the theatre ind- <clears throat> the world is, is up its own arse. Like, really is up its own arse. Yeah. Like, and I think that... I think maybe an immigrant, not trained, tech, like not at all technically trained, I've got a massive chip on my shoulder about the fact that this is a bit wank, that like mm. being creative is a bit silly. And so I made it something that was gritty and like an act of class defiance or something, which is all well and good until everything crashes and suddenly there's sort of the odd Zoom rehearsal, but... Who am, who am I? Andy, who am I? Wow. So, well, thank I'll you, Nadia, for that. coming. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the pod. Um, it's been really great to have you. Wow. Well, there you go. What a start. Bearing all that in mind, because you pretty much, uh, you've pretty much gone through everything I was going to ask you in the first five minutes, which is great, because now we're in uncharted territory, <laughs> so we're going to just talk about whatever. Um, so I've been starting by asking people, uh, when was the last time you wanted to be an actor? And so bearing in mind all of that, I'd be when very was the last when was the time? last time you had the moment of like really wanting to be an actor? Because if you bear all that in mind... Oh my gosh. Andy, I'm so <laughs> concerned that I have... This is so odd. And keeping in mind that I had this so-called epiphany yesterday, which is so typical of me. Um, so I'm completely just bullshitting my way through my truth. But I don't think that I have let myself say I want to be an actor. What I did, very sneakily, was just be an actor. And honestly, in terms of advice, it's a really shit-hot way to go about it, considering I have no credentials, 
and have been an imposter this whole time, including I've got a British passport, but I'm my paperwork is dodgy, guys. It's dodgy. Okay. Um, luckily, HMRC and the government have looked through all of that. Um, just lovely anecdote. I went to university because genuinely I was not intending to be. An Where did you go to university? I went to the University of Birmingham. Right. Because which my, is where you're from? Um, no. So my. But you, well, you grew up in Egypt. I grew up in the. Oh well. Right. Oh God. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, here we go. So, um, <laughs> here we go. Okay, I've got your notebooks We're out. You will be tested on yeah. this. Um, I was born in Cairo, um, and my family is, is from the City of the Dead, and that's where my mum's from. But my dad is British-born, Yes. and we traipsed around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad changed jobs every so often. It sounds like he's a spy, guys. I, I realise this. He might be a spy. He you might know. be, still, yeah, we don't know. Still we don't know. Um, yeah. And he's got a sort of bumbling energy, which I think is a great cover, so yeah, I'm very yeah, suspicious. Yeah, <laughs> um, But yeah, we, and we just sort of hopped around the world. We crossed continents and spent three to four years in loads of different places. And that was my upbringing. And then when I was 17, just as sixth form ended, and again, because my education was so erratic, God knows what age I actually am again, guys. The paperwork is dodgy. Um, but I, I decided to leave home and went back to one of the countries that I'd lived in originally, um, in Hungary. And, and then was sort of... I had to go to university. It was kind of the, the done thing. My parents had been keeping a sort of bank of money for me just for university because education is the way out of anything, right? Mm. It's the way to empower anybody. And that was predominantly my dad's job was in education and development across the world to save the children and things like that um, in crisis situations and in war zones and so the gift that my mum and dad were able to give me was the gift of education which I squandered no but I, I went to university the university that my dad had been to when he was younger and mm. he went because his brother went and he mm. went because the sister went mm. um, uh, and it was kind of I can't explain to you how much this accent is a fraud because I came to Britain posher than I am now and had no idea where I was who anyone was, I'd, I'd heard of the Arctic Monkeys because I'd accidentally discovered them on YouTube thinking that I was a maverick. Um, but, like, no cultural references. I think it's every, everyone's experience of discovering <laughs> yeah, the Arctic Monkeys. Thinking immediately you're a maverick. It feels yeah. niche. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I came back, and I say back as if I'd been here before. I mean, I'd come for holidays and eat. Did you feel like you were coming home? Not at all, not at all. I felt like... But I did feel like I was allowed. And I wonder okay. if it's the paperwork, and I wonder if it's the occasional holidays in Britain but also it was the idea of university I felt really brilliantly privileged and entitled to a university education and so I came and I was going to do art history and English literature and then I was doing English literature and then I say that I ran away with a circus essentially I I had been trained in dance because that's the only language that's global <laughs> but actually all around the world dance no, yeah, actually you can go into any dance yeah. class and yeah. You don't, you know, even music is like do, re, mi in some countries still. And so it's a bit different. But no. dance, you just follow the music and follow along. No. Um, and so the Birmingham International Dance Festival was in 2012. And they called a flash mob. And I was like, brilliant. And four people turned up. <laughs> and I was one of them. And we turned into this like weird exclusive, because all of us happened to have dance training, like dance troupe for the, for the International Dance Festival. And uh, how old were you at this point? I was, I guess, I was eighteen. Okay. So yeah, eighteen. And someone barged into our rehearsal room one day, and was like, "God, we need some angels. We need angels for the top of the building." For God, it was some, it was called something like something about a dream or something about a vision. And it was uh, Goldie was being the MC, who I had no idea who he was, 
and they needed people to act as angels on the tops of buildings around the central square in Birmingham. And I was like, oh my God, they need me. <laughs> and so I put my hand up and literally from then on, I accidentally, inadvertently stumbled into acting job after acting job. Mm. I don't think, Andy, I ever let myself go, I want to be an actor. I think what happened was I went to a flash mob and suddenly became one. And then I blagged it for eight years and ended up at the Royal Shakespeare Company. This is the moment when someone comes in and like takes me away because I'm a fraud. But like that's, I think that's what happened. And I. But do you feel like a fraud? Um. I I feel like there's been some wheeler dealing happening, but. But from, why? I think it's actually not to the world, the outside world. I think it was inside me. Yeah. Because there is no way, there is no way I didn't want to be an actor. There is no way that this feeling, this this craft doesn't pulse in my heart. There is no way that's the case. If anything's fraudulent, it's that narrative I had in myself that was like, oh, it's just a job. I fell into it. Oh, here I am. I'll just keep on grafting away. I have put hours and tears and sweat into this into this career. And it's not mm. even a career, into this lifestyle, into this life. Would you see it as a career? Um... Yeah, and I think that that's... Is it now? Yeah, and I think yeah. even at the time, <clears throat> at the time I saw it as jobs, mm. and I don't know when there was a moment where I went, oh, this is a career now. I think maybe when there was a bit of progression or when externally what I was doing seemed like it was improving. Um, or yeah, there seemed to be sort of like a development going on. And I think that was the moment that I allowed myself to use the word career. But it was all really sort of practical. It was like, I've got this job. It's not a nine to five exactly, but this is it. It pays my bills. Mm. I eventually went to university less because I was gigging. I, was, I had jobs. Mm. And then realising that this was a job I could do well-ish, you know, and I learnt fast, meant that I'd do several jobs at the same time because obviously I wasn't being particularly well paid. And so I had to do several things at the same And then suddenly my whole day, my whole life was acting in different capacities, rehearsed readings, um, um, research and development, uh, script editing, but da da and it filled my whole existence. And I think, uh, literally until coronavirus, I was like, yeah, it's just, it's what I do. It's not what I am. And I'm, I come to you today with going, is it what we are? Can, is, can, is that a thing? Right. Is there a thing? And I think that a lot of the young people that I work with when I do facilitation or actors in different points in their acting lives, because I think career maybe makes it sound like it's a meritocracy or like we're heading somewhere. And I don't think that that's always the case, and maybe that's fine, because maybe the journey of this life is where the joy is, and where the art is, and where the connections are. And so maybe career makes it sound like it's all, like all the other jobs. And I think today, and it might just be today and tomorrow, I'll probably shout, shout at this podcast and be like, Nadie, you twat! Of course it is a career! And I'll have something ridiculously eloquent and, and yeah. eloquent to say about it. But um, I think, yeah, I think that I think I have, I have had a career, I've had a job, but I wonder, like genuinely, to think back and go, when did I last think I want to be an actor? Was probably when I was very, very small, and it was such a silly notion mm. that I then, for actually several years, committed to being a, a sort of a cashier. <laughs> committed to being a cashier? I was so obsessed. My parents bought me one of those little Fisher-Price cashiers because I wanted to practice. 
because I just thought it was the coolest that's job ever. That's so nice. That was my dream. <laughs> so that sweet. Was, <laughs> yeah, that was my that was the apex of my of my dreams and motivation. And so that was the so that was the. I'm, I'm so hesitant about stopping you mid no, thoughts because go it's so it. good. But it's, it, I I you so that young girl yeah uh, in Egypt mm-hmm. was that was that the extent of your horizons. Well, it was, I think that, no, I could have done, my parents were amazing Mm. and my family are incredible. And Mm. it was like, you could be anything, but what you need to be is useful. What you need to be is useful, right? Right. And and I could be, you know, there was a point where I was like, I'm going to be a philosopher because somehow in my head, that was a job for one thing. And also it was like, I'm going to sit and think for the world, you know, Mm. and then give them ideas. Mm. Like Aristotle, <laughs> God, God. And, and I'm pretending like I wasn't a bloody artist the whole time. But yeah, and I think that I just there was a utility, and the places that I saw were places of desperation and devastation, and I needed to do something. I wanted to be something that could right. help, right. or be something that is a job. Like I know that cashiers are jobs. I genuinely, I saw theatre when I was little in very very odd circumstances, and every time my parents could afford to come back to Britain for holidays we'd see theatre. Right. We'd go to the Globe if we... Was that your sort of earliest experience of when we think about what were you watching, what were you... Dance, what were you being involved in? Theatre back here? Yeah. Or not back here, but here here. was what you were... Well, in Egypt and in many other countries, a level of theatricality and passion Mm. is the day-to-day. Right. People tell anecdotes in animated puppeteering modes. They commit to a story. They enrol one another in role play, just mm. across a dinner table, um, definitely in Egypt, but in several of the other cultures that I lived in, dance is a life force and something that you are entitled to, regardless of who you are and where you were raised, mm. in so many places. And that's what you were surrounded by That's what I was surrounded time. by, and music okay. and drumming. And different and, places as And well. different places, and mm. seeing that that crosses it. But in a way, that sort of theatre, and I, I like, I very douchely sometimes call it like the breathing arts, the things that are alive and live, right? Those happen mm. everywhere, all the time, in the day-to-day. Mm. So it's not a job, right? And then what you see is, you see like soap operas and you see films and you appreciate the craft, but it's that's leagues away from your existence. The soap operas and the films are not you, they're a different group and you're used to seeing that there are groups who are entitled or privileged or above or lofty. They're the people who have, in some places, the running water or in some places, the electricity that doesn't cut off or just you know, the nice schools. And I'd go to some of those schools if the NGOs paid for it and I'd see this incredible, extravagant lives that people led. And that was just as foreign to me as the films. But you played as a person, regardless of your age or creed. And that was, I think, those were my first experiences of real storytelling were around my family's living room. But do you see how that makes it... But it's also, it's... It makes it hard to then think that that's a job or like yes or can be commodified so when people are going what will you be when you grow up you think about things that you can be when you grow up but if you've been it your whole life and your whole community (laughs) are theatrical Mm. and again and when it's so normal and normalized it it then becomes really and you you can hear it in my voice the way i describe things it's like (laughs) we are we are a culture in egypt of embellishment and poetic like 
one of my favourite things is listening to Egyptian commentary of football matches because genuinely sometimes <laughs> yeah, I do live yeah, recordings yeah, exactly. with my boyfriend and I'm like, I'm like he's running he's like diamonds he trips over his feet his feet that his mother raised his mother held up her hands and from her palms he jumped he scores the goal the goal of stars like that's so I speak in English and it sounds ludicrous but in Arabic that's how it is yeah I was going to say I don't I think I don't think it I, I wanted to just say well, we're 18 minutes in nothing what you've said so far is wanky I think it's just I think English people just have such a problem with sincerity that we can't we're like oh no no don't be used. you're actually meaning something um, but I'm, I'm intrigued to uh, go back a bit to when you were talking about because um, you said it you said it briefly and then you sort of stopped yourself. Mm. Uh, you were sort of like, you said something about um, dance or the storytelling you were, mm. you were taking in kind of crossed mm. boundaries. You said you were about to say cross something. I don't Absolutely. know what you, what you were about to say. But I wondered, it feels like, or it sounds like you had a, your earliest experiences uh, of storytelling, dance, mm. whatever you were taking in had a value and had a real like value to the sort of the community and the family Absolutely. and I wonder now that when you talk about your kind of I wonder how you feel about sort of that in terms of uh the UK yeah. where it, yeah. it I, I don't necessarily think it always feels like that I'm I'm I, that's a massive generalization of the entire mm. theatre industry in the UK but I wonder what your experience of it is like. That's exactly right. And I think that that's the... It's like culture clash. I think that's exactly... It's that transformation between this thing that feels grassroots and authentic. And like you said, sincere. And, and useful. And, and valued. Useful. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. that's when you talk about use. Absolutely. And so... And it's not... And it's also beyond capitalism. Oh my God, I'm a massive communist. I'm so sorry. But it's beyond <laughs> commodification. <laughs> it's beyond commodification. In the homes that I lived in, that the power of story was beyond being paid for it or a notion of a nine to five. My family certainly are shackled by their by their bills, by their responsibilities, and dance and music and story and anecdote and history and pretend and play transcend that, transcend the poverty and transcend our fears about money and the oppression of our governments. And so it, it isn't in that realm. And then what somehow happened is that I came to Britain and to pay my bills, I pretend and dance and tell stories. Mm. And I think that that culture clash is exactly it, is that I think that, that the, the sort of the notion of it being a commodity or something that you can you train in it's a skill set i mean we're currently when we record this in the midst of this like bizarre retraining controversy in our government going you know artists should go and retrain possibly said possibly not said possibly meant but not said Mm. um but it's a completely different idea and i think that when you're afraid of being wanky which i desperately am i've got i've got a massive cognitive dissonance between this idea that art is the most true a human can be and then here, where that level of truth or that level of play in the day-to-day seems like showcasing. Mm. Or if you do voices and you also happen to be paid as an actor, you are showing off somehow. Or, you know, the number of my friends who are in, in different uh, sort of like walks of life 
picking up me picking up a guitar in my living room is seen as a gesture of something it, it talks to a whole culture of what an artist is in Britain which isn't the same we don't leap up and dance randomly or someone drums something on a dinner table and suddenly the food's set aside and the little toddler's put on the table to do a dance like that's not that doesn't happen here and so I think that my two cultures and it's funny I say two cultures and it's like Britain and everywhere else which is a massive generalisation too no, but yeah, there yeah. is something that is that is I have seen that brings out the dance and the laughter and the story in so many other places and I mean it's cruel to say that Britain's repressed but there's something different about here and us and I say us now mm. which I didn't for years but we have a very different relationship with it and then it comes to this moment in time when possibly our government is asking us to retrain and is not paying for our buildings to reopen and part of me is going tear it all down because it's not suited I as someone who maybe was an actor all along in my heart mm did more and affected more people and was more true when it was just me and my family and my friends playing at life between, between the cracks of, of, of money and bureaucracy and corruption. That was, that was fucking political. Hmm. And, there was, and, I, and that's not to say that some of the shows I've been in and done have not been incredible, led by women of colour, led by uh, incredible like queer role models of mine, led by people who come from a demographic that should be oppressors and have thrown it all off. Like, I've done amazing work in this country. Mm. But that's almost in spite of our landscape, the theatre landscape. And part of me now, as much as I, you know, have little emotional breakdowns, I say little, it was devastating and large last night. (laughs) But I'm going, I miss my job, I miss it. But also, Mm -hmm. I'm like, bloody hell, was it ever suited to this thing that we do? This fascination with humanity. I used to tell myself that the reason I did it here was because I'd walk down the streets, say, in Birmingham city centre, and I'd notice how, in, in my time in Britain, the number of homeless has increased tenfold, and that is not statistically accurate. But it felt like that. And I'd watch everyone else walking down the street, learning to not see them, learning to not see the humanity of the people. It's bizarre to me because I, many of the countries I lived in have enormous homeless issues, children on the street, cats, dogs, just incredible poverty. And I always felt that this place was more sophisticated, almost more humane, I think I thought, which was hilarious. And watching the British people normalise homelessness, I was like, oh, okay, what I do, what I do is I stand on stage and I, people have paid and they are, they are forced to, they are provoked to, watch me be a human. And so the more naturalistic I can bloody learn to be, the more real I can learn to be, the more observed I am, the more purposeful I am, then I, for this one moment, for this like 90 minutes, the people of Britain are compelled to look at a human. And I was like, because you know, British people, like again, like talking out my heart, I was like, British people are like dehumanising one another, we don't even make eye contact, and like, Mm. the Londoners don't even say hello on the tube. You know, and I was like, oh, this is what I'm doing, this is the political moment. And I kind of believe it. There is a massive humanising effect of, of theatre, of, of this art, of this breathing, live thing. Mm. But again, if that was an offshoot of what I was doing, it was in spite of, or an accidental symptom of the stages in the plays, not the purpose. We didn't sit in our rehearsal rooms going, how do we no, yeah. break right. this out? You, you couldn't, because you know, you that would just be... Because yeah. we'd go, oh my God, maybe Pross Arch really doesn't work. And it's not like, oh, let's do it in thrust because we're edgy. We'd be like, oh no, no, wait, the, the audiences that are coming in are still the same demographic. 
is that right weight? So are we humanised and are we telling them the story? And who are we telling stories for? Half the time we're telling stories for ourselves, which is right, surely. But is there a political impetus to tell stories for the audiences we see? And then who are... It's just a quagmire of yeah. bollocks. Like, right, right, we're, okay. we're screwed, right? Like, and surely in this moment, maybe tearing it all down and going, what is it to be an actor? Oh my God, which brings us around back to my question. But like, but what is it to be an actor? What is, what compels us? Yeah. Is there a calling? What is the calling for? I, I, th- I think a lot of people will be asking that question of themselves, whether it's for financial reasons or mm-hmm. just for their own reasons of just, there's nothing to do and wanting to do something, like you say, of value. I'm interested then when you talk about, when you talk about that, and again, it, this is like the I Word podcast, so we, we won't talk, or we can talk about a job, but I think it's important to talk about this job that you did mm. um, recently, which is, you just finished, uh, when I met you, I think, um, uh, you were at the RSC, yes. and you played, you understudied King John, yes. which I think that is worth, <laughs> I think it's worth bringing up, because it's like, you know, the fact that you were playing, I'm, <laughs> the fact that you are uh, an immigrant, yes. Uh, a woman, yes, and then an understudy, yes, playing King John, <laughs> a lead role at the RSC, I and you know. found it on the night. Yes, I'm wondering how all of what you've talked about mm. so far, how that brain then dealt with that situation, because yeah, this is it, go. isn't it? But so <laughs> right, this is it, isn't it? Is that because all of these, all of this that I've this web that I've weaved in the last several hours I've been talking at you no, in the last few minutes is about the sense that there's there are so many different ways of being an artist and I think that I personally by way of getting through it because I love it mm. because I'm fueled by it because it is my passion whether I wanted to admit it or not it was a job and my job was to be brilliant at it and I managed to separate, we call it code switching, when we switch languages or switch cultural code codes. Code switching, yeah. what was that from? So um, it's a thing that happens in our brains. Um, we talk about it a lot in sort of racial terms, in that there's a massive code switch that happens a lot of the time with POC. When they go into white spaces, there's a code switch. And it's it's a switch of right. your cultural code. But it happens, I'm bilingual, I was raised trilingual. Every time you change language, your whole um, perception of the world, the way that you analyse things... The suggestions, we don't really know much about neuroscience, but your whole brain wiring shifts because you're in a different code. And I think that I code switch from the sort of like whimsical, spiritual thing. For most of my career, I was jobbing and I'd be proud and sort of grittily working class in this posh accent about being a jobbing actor. And I think that what happens is that how did I make it? I just did it. I was an actor and I was an actor and I was an actor and it's so much luck and it's effort and it's resilient and it's great. Somehow, against the odds, with all of that imposter syndrome, I ended up accepting the understudy role at the RSE, which was a dream come true. I had put my like eyes on the RSE yeah, because okay. I'd seen RSE shows when I came back on holidays. I knew that that was the epitome <laughs> of something. <laughs> And now I, you know, just so happened to be an actor. I I didn't want to be an actor. It wasn't my dream or anything. But I just so happened to be. And now I had the opportunity. And I went in for an audition. And then this bloody understudy role came up. And I am so pessimistic. Every audition I go into, I'm like, the audition is the thing. You go in, you have the audition itself, and then that's all you have. And if you have the, get the job, that's a completely separate addition 
to the audition, which was the yeah. gift. The gift was interacting with the casting. I was going to say, I don't think that's positive. I don't think that's I just quickly to just back you up to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't think that's that sounds pessimistic at all. I think that sounds kind of innately optimistic because you're making the best of the situation that you've just got in, in the moment. I, I love that that's how you consider it. I think in my head, quite <laughs> cynically, I'm like, it's because I expect not to get the job, okay. so I've made it good. Yeah, you know? yeah. I and it, equally with this understudy thing, I was like, you know, from what I gather, and again, it was just me making assertions that I haven't backed up, but I was like, understudies hardly ever go on. We're going to have an understudy run. And maybe it was quite a long run. Either way, I'm going to be bloody prepared. It was the day of the show, but it was a matinee. And earlier that morning, we'd all got an email through that one of the other actors had gone ill. This was before the understudy rehearsals had started in full in Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, and so there was a bit of a, a furore about the fact that this one other actor had to like quickly get his blocking. So I think he went in at 9am or 8.30 or something and was desperately trying to learn his track. Blah, 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 blah. And then we went, all went in and we were like, oh my God, blimey, you're going to have to go and understudy. And I was like, oh, that's exciting. And I was literally in Downward Dog during one of the brilliantly led warm-ups. <laughs> and I looked through my own legs and saw the entire <clears throat> stage management team of the Royal Shakespeare Company leering at me. They weren't leering. They were looking very, very worried. And then, bless her, this woman called Pip Horobin, who is such an incredible woman and has the cutest dog, took me into a corner that since then, and I was at the, at the RSC after that for about seven more months, I have never found this bloody corner. Where did she take me, Andy? I have no idea. Somewhere, suddenly we were in a nook. Mm. And she was like, listen, Rosie Sheehy, King John, is very ill. But the thing is, you, we've, you've not understudy run. You've not, you've not rehearsed it. Mm. Um, so you don't have to do this. And something, it, because it's my job, it's my job, right. it's this my makes job. makes a lot of sense. I yeah. just go, and I've said this to you before, I became so much more casual than any human being is naturally ever. It's like I lost all my bones. They just became like jelly. And suddenly I was just like, like really lethargic sort of um, loose person. I was like, listen, Pip, totally got it. And she was like, are you a fuck? And, I, and because <clears throat> it's a lie that it's just a job, it is my bloody like, love of my life. I, had, I was off book. And me and the, the vocal coach had been having like sneaky conversations about the iambic and I, I'd studied English literature I was obsessed um I'd done shit tons of work that I thought like an audition was all the work I'd do I was like I'm going to take advantage of this incredible building and these incredible voice practitioners and that would be it and I'll never go on and it was the matinee and we had it was half an hour till uh it was it was something like 15 minutes to our half hour call because we were in a warm-up and I blagged it oh my god there's a theme and I was like yeah of course and got into my costume and I had to practice one bit of walking because the golden dress was enormous and I went on and it wasn't until I was in some of the scenes that I was like no one but my shower head who isn't a person but I have personified have heard this monologue <laughs> but it was singularly the most incredible moment of my life singularly and I had to do the evening show because it was a bloody Saturday. So I did it twice in one go. And then um, luckily for me and tragically for our incredible actual lead, I got to play it like 10 times. But I think it didn't clash with my notion because I'm like, imagine I was a plumber and the head plumber couldn't make it, but someone's toilet was like, they needed me, it was useful. 
So mm. I went and did the job. Mm. Um, and it's funny, isn't it? Because I think that that's... Yeah, it's, it's kind of extraordinary. Not because of my performance, not because of anything I did, but because of where I came from. And not just... And I think that this industry is so... Oh, shit, sorry about that. <laughs> this place. But you know what, it is. No, I'm, it I'm, is, it's, no it you, is, you, you, you definitely allowed to it. say that. Yeah. No, but it is. It's a fickle thing. <clears throat> right. And I think that it's... But, and I think that actually the I word in my life, like in this, in this has been crucial because I have hidden behind the fact that it is, it is the word that you're not allowing me to say is about manufacturing. It's about creating maybe a commodity or a thing or a product. Exactly. And that's what yeah. I hid behind, yeah. I think, to allow myself to prance about mm. and to be joyful. Totally. And it's actually the I word itself is the point of this is like underneath all of that I think there's a longing to connect and I think that there is a bloody need for it like all mm. through this I'm going what's the use oh, it happens in places where theatres aren't buildings or can't be buildings or only the richest of the rich can go there so this is this is life like we are humans we tell these stories there's something about it that's like maybe so much greater than the buildings or all of those, like the trappings that we end up chatting about for hours and hours when we meet our friends who are also actors. But maybe that's just because we're these tiny little humans trying not to think about the entire universe. We're trying not to think about the stars. So instead we're like, how is your pothole? You know, this street should be paved. You know, but that's, I think that's the thing mm. is that like we, I think that I want, I pretended I was a plumber. I think I pretended I was a handyman. I think I pretended I was a bit like an accountant, actually. Cashier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was a cashier, yeah, yeah. just with a different <clears throat> sort of things and less buttons to push, which was a really, it's really unfortunate because all I wanted to do was press buttons. <laughs> um, but I think that's, I think that's, it's a really bizarre moment you find me in, which is like, I think that it's okay what's happening right now because I think that we are artists. And I think that you know it. You know that you're an actor. You know that you're someone who is a gatekeeper to a story and your job is to keep the gate open. Yeah, I love that phrase. That's and not nice. guard it, right? Yeah, that's really nice. And I think that maybe we've allowed the potholes and the pavement and that walk on the ground of our earth to distract us and to become the conversation. But this is something bigger. This is like breath this is humanity this is staring down the eyes of of empathy like and this is ridiculous <laughs> but i think there's something there's something that we can all hold on to and it really doesn't matter about the funding and it really doesn't matter about the buildings there's a reason that we're upset be upset be really upset and then think why am i upset oh it's because Mm. And we don't care about the I word. None of us do. We don't care. We don't care, guys. And if you're in it, if you but you, we don't. If you're yeah. in it no, for no. the accolades, if you're in it for the reviews, if you're in it for press night, you're not going to be in it for long because there's only one press night a show. Because most auditions end in heartbreak because most of the time you don't fit the casting brief. That's not what this journey is. Mm. The journey is the bits in between. The journey is when you see someone walking down the street and you go, oh my God, real people walk like that. If I did that on stage, I'd get, my director would be like, 
yelling at me that that's a ridiculous caricature. Yeah. Those are the thoughts. That's what makes you someone who's like obsessed with humanity. And I think that's why, despite climate crisis, which I think is real. I don't know. I've been watching too much Trump. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching too much Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, Donald Trump too. Like complete chaos, global pandemics. Despite all of that, I actually think we are necessary. You're necessary. Hmm. There's something intrinsic about this, and whether or not for the next few months or years we push the dinner off the table and cut, get up and dance on our fucking right. tablecloths, whether that's that's the extent of it, I have seen that that matters. Yeah, I have seen that that's it. This is it. I think I, need you here. I think I need you here every episode <laughs> so you can just reiterate that point because it just sums up everything that I can't articulate about this podcast in one sentence so thank you but yeah I yeah I would agree I think it's it's it, it's interesting that it's like yeah it's just interesting I don't know I, don't, I, don't, I can't follow on that just, yeah so but I'm interested when you when to go back a little bit yeah um to something that seems very mundane now, but I think is something that is it sort of fits in with what you were talking about. In that, like you mentioned that you you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you didn't train, mm. whatever that yeah. means yeah. to people, and whatever yeah. it means to the I word, it almost feels like sometimes uh, you can get an audition off the back of going like, oh, I went to Central, Absolutely. I went to Prada. So I wonder how you feel, how you feel in those circles. I think I'm so lucky because uh, it's okay. This sounds this sounds like I knew something that other people didn't know, but is it not? You probably did. <laughs> <laughs> no, but is it not bullshit? Is it not bullshit that actually everyone's training is what you make of it? Yeah. Really. No. Yeah, so actually, right, and it depends yeah. on the day and it depends on the year. And where your mental and where that person is at. is at that point, point in their life exactly, mm. and at, like not even in age, but in like the age of your soul. Sorry, I'm Arab. Just keep remembering. That. But like <laughs> the Egyptian <laughs> just coming out, out. Yeah. the diamonds. His feet. <laughs> um, but like I think that it's it doesn't. In my experience, the correlation between where you trained and how good you are at your job, and what I see as being good at your job is not only your ability to be convincing, but what sort of team player you are. In early days when I was jobbing at really small establishments, like, would you help with the get-in and the get-out? How kind are you to your technicians? How much are you aware that you're a small cog in a big machine? That level, like, uh, do you tell the story at the expense of your other actors? Or do you promote and champion the actors at the expense of the story? Or do you always only promote yourself? Like, those are the bits, those were the metrics that I looked at people. I looked at them very, very carefully because... I think I started off with a sense of smallness and I wanted, I, it's almost like I wanted not to prove myself, but I knew I had a lot to learn, which was true. And I think all of us do. Mm. And it would have been an enormous privilege to go and get to learn that somewhere that everyone in that space is committed to teaching you. Or that's the illusion that I had of, of drama schools. But I was like, well, no one's going to, no one's going to be my mentor or teacher so I got to self-motivate. So I watched every actor. And the best actors were the ones I learnt the do-nots from. Oh, I don't want to be like so-and-so. Or I love that about so-and-so, but I don't want to be the sort of actor who... I'd watch the way people took notes. I'd watch the way that people um, 
some actors would like absolutely transform on the first night of, of shows having completely led everyone else astray through rehearsal periods and I was like no don't want to do that didn't want to be the sorts of actors who um would amble to rehearsal and then leg the last few minutes and then come in all fre- like fretful and restless and be like oh my god I'm so sorry with a I just, coffee like, yeah they're like, genuinely oh my god. and a scarf always <laughs> yeah, yeah. um Having said that, I did buy a scarf after I played King John, and everyone was like, Nadi, you changed. <laughs> <laughs> so I've totally. Won before. The man two, has won. Yeah, no, exactly. The man has won. <laughs> the machine has taken me. But, um, but I think that I, think that I de- did feel like I had a lot to do because I wasn't. I, I saw drama school as a gift, a gift that some people got. And some people, I don't want to say squandered, but some people made of differently. And some people, those lessons would eventually sink in many many years later but what I my theory was I could learn on the job mm. because again it's, it comes back to this theory about like apprenticeship or being a, a silversmith like I could learn on the job loads of people learn on the job yeah I could, it's the only thing I think drama school doesn't teach you exactly those all those things you just said absolutely about and taking notes about all this thing it's like you don't sorry finances like yeah. taxes mm. like I'm so lucky to have been pushed into the deep end of being like bloody hell I'm self-employed. Okay, wait. So there's national insurance. I can offer to pay national insurance. Like, and I'd ask my drama school friends, especially as as my colleagues became um, drama school students, I would absolutely steal off their educations and I'd be like, what did they say about actioning? Because mm. I wouldn't know. Mm. To be fair, every director brings in their toolkit mm. and directors delight, for I think really altruistic reasons, delight in teaching you their mode and their toolkit. So if you don't know what actioning is... Actually, very often they don't look their nose does down at you. But people do mention Stanislavski a lot, and unless you know who he is, <laughs> you yeah, do feel yeah, left yeah, out. Yeah. But but actually, in terms of teaching, you might not get all the Brechtian in-jokes and feel a bit othered, but also I didn't know who Beyonce was until about 2018. So, like, you know, swings around about. But, like, <laughs> but in terms of, like, oh, we're going we're gonna to unit this, if you, if you are able to go, sorry, I don't know what uniting is, which maybe is a privilege because I wonder if you've been to these incredible institutions, you come out feeling like a pressure to have remembered. Or, oh fuck, I don't want to unit. Like, yeah, or, or that's not part of what I do. Exactly. And whether that's positive or not, that's you've got it into your head. You've had that experience because that's you've led pra- to you. Exactly. There, you've yeah. trained in it, you've practiced right. it, you've been given a grade right. in some places. Yeah. Or yeah. you maybe can't remember because, frankly, mm. I can't remember sixth form at all. Yeah. And it's been seven years and you've been in, you know, in work and doing stuff, and then someone's like, Oh, we're going to do a Meisner technique, da, 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 da. and you're like, I definitely know I did that, but you don't remember it. But you've got mm. a brilliant accreditation on your CV of this incredible institution you went to, and you feel embarrassed to be like, I don't remember right. what, who Meisner is. Right. But if you're Nadi, and you've literally never been taught anything explicitly, and you know you have to learn, maybe you have practiced going, I am so sorry, I have no idea what that means which actually is an incredible gift. And I think one that despite my eight years and my, and you know, a growing repertoire and many lessons definitely learned, the one lesson that I hope I keep is the one of being like, ignorance is your strongest ally. Hmm. Because people do love to teach and people do love to share. And thespians, as, as judgmental as they are, the most judgment happens in the conversations that this podcast is like contrasting. Oh in those conversations over lunches and breakfasts and coffees, that's when the judgment leaps out. But in the rehearsal room, everyone's terrified. Yeah, and yeah. art's about to happen. And people <clears throat> tend to be much more gracious yeah. when you're like, I don't know what that is. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I think that, I think that it's, it's a story about 
a privilege actually of knowing that I didn't know things yeah and also maybe possibly seeing through the bullshit see knowing myself in lived experience empirical evidence that TIE is where the magic happens because children will not let you act badly they will not listen and if you find that veristic truth they all cry and you might have fucking changed a generation <laughs> she says not at all arrogantly but that's, like, that's where that's drama's happening in right. its most it's most pure right yeah, yeah. or maybe in my Formative. limited yeah, yeah my limited thought, thoughts about it where it's like the living rooms of my family's homes yeah. that's the thing it's that's closest to it connects to the exactly. same thing of the living room yeah. which feels to me like most yeah. authentic right so i i go and then when so when people roll their eyes at at, at uh puppeteering for children or roll their eyes You're at school them, I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm like I feel like I know something you yeah, don't hear like yeah, 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 that's yeah, bollocks yeah. and then I look at it and I look at this the I word and I look at all of its trappings and I go oh it's a bit pretentious <laughs> and it's a bit exclusive <laughs> and I don't like that about it. Sure. it and it's and I'm I think I'm really lucky that my experiences meant that I I had to have a deep respect for get-ins get-outs technicians yeah, yeah and children yeah. and animals <laughs> and all the things we're told not to work with yes because actually they are they're where it's at they're like it's like the purest mm. yeah yeah <laughs> i think i just think it's like that because i think it's good that I, i'm glad i asked that question because i think it's i'm glad i'm glad i'm such a good host I um, am too. <laughs> but it's just like the i think the the narrative of the the actor or actress who uh, never trains, mm. gets jobs, and is now you know recently mm. working at the RSC. Mm. For people who do train, can be in the same way that people who don't train do train can mm. be discouraging on both sides. Absolutely. And I think that the 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 notion or the the perspective of going, regardless where you come from, and I said as well that mm. that's the only thing drama school doesn't teach you. There's, drama school is drama school. You take yeah. work from what you like yeah. you said. But I think that thing of going, it's sort of down to you, I think is a really, it's not, I don't think is a, I don't think should feel like a pressure. I don't I would never want to, I would never want to feel like people feel it's a pressure. Mm. I think it's a, it's a, it's a blessing. Absolutely. And it's liberation. It's Absolutely. like, no, you can decide what you do in the best, in, I don't know that people struggle with finances and stuff, but at the same time, you know. And it's maybe, Everything you said, whatever yeah. you said, no, just no, do that. No, but that's, that's the thing, isn't it? It's like, it's like I, I'm so glad this is the way I came about it because I did learn and I was, and this is why I, I deem it as pessimistic, but I was willing to live my whole life. Every job I got, I was like, if this was my job forever now, would I be okay with it? And the answer was always yes, resounding, mm. yeah, yes. Yeah. Right. Resounding, absolutely mm. fucking tell everyone from the top of buildings as an angel no but like that's I was like I could do this forever mm. and that's how I told myself that this was the job I should be doing because although the National and the RSC were in like were, were the motivation I was like that is not the destination it's the direction and so everything I do is going to be directed towards those places where I was sure that they would do the most incredible work they had the, the best teams I'd be working with actors who would teach me so much it was like, and, and I learned, because as, as that being my direction, I also learned that some of the smallest theatres that no one gives credit to or value to in this weird metric that we use, some amazing work happens there too. Oh, yeah, and so I learned that humility, mm. but 
I think that that was the way I came about it and I'm so glad I did because I did make it to my dream and I did love every fucking second of every step and every graft and every bloody train three times a day to different rehearsal rooms. I loved that, but would I have gone to drama school if I could? Yes, Mm. because there's something so delicious and fantastical for me about the notion that you go into this building and everyone there's job is to teach you to be a brilliant practitioner because I learned that every director's job is to make the show great and so you are a part of that puzzle they're not there to to raise you or to nurture you and that's exactly as it should be because for me I think the story is what matters and your actors aren't there to put you under their wing or they're there for the story so imagine a building where everyone's there to to pick you up on your little things that you might not have noticed yourself Mm. I think you have to do a a bit more effort to catch yourself out to be open to criticism to take the criticism well and stoically when it happens but take it home with you and interrogate it just in case when you're out in like the actual world of it Mm. but I think that there's like I think it's an unfortunate notion that if you go to the right places and you meet the right people or if you're talented enough or if you work hard enough you'll make it to your goals I'm going to talk about capitalism again I think that's a capitalist notion of like the American dream, but for theatre. I don't think that's how it is. I don't think it's, it's fair. And I don't, think it's, I don't think it gives you what you put in on that scale, on the scale of stardom. But if you love it, it loves you back. Yeah. But you kind of have to learn to love the bit where you're a mascot. <laughs> or love the bit where you're so far at the back of a prosop stage that probably genuinely no one can see you. But you're there <laughs> and you're in it. And it's like what is, and it's theatre we're talking about rather than film for the second. But like it's live, and you were there. Mm. That's 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 really where cool. it's at. Yeah. And I think whether or not you've learnt it from drama school or you're learning it on the job, and and you've got to do, you get like a framework from jobbing, and you get a framework from drama school. From what I gather, and again, I have stolen a lot of a lot of information from my friends about it. But then you always have to add more. But I think the, the one thing is, like, you are not, unfortunately, not entitled to anything. You are deserving. And you dem- demand what you deserve. But unfortunately, you're not entitled to. It doesn't matter what you've done so far. It's a transient world. You've chosen a, a job where the moment passes. Hmm. The moment on, a, on stage, the moment between two actors passes. That's what we're trying to bottle, and we can't. So just live it. Be present in it, and if you love every single stage you step on, or and that stage can be your living room, and it can be in this podcast, and it can be wherever you are. If that if that's bringing you a level of joy, then you're exactly in the right place. Nice one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so um, we end each pod with a <clears throat> with Andy not being able to speak. Um, Sorry, you're just so moved. I'm just so moved. No. People will be. It should be. Um, yeah. So we always end with a um, uh, with a recommendation, right? Uh, which I asked you to do. Yeah. And you just said, "Ha Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so uh, it can be anything, but it's with the idea of giving it to someone, mm-hmm. with the hope that they could watch it. I mean, everyone has a Netflix mm. list the size of their mm-hmm. arm, but like you know, it's just. Putting it out there so that one person maybe watch it and be like, oh yeah, that's why I wanted to be an actor. 
So what have you? Oh my brought? god! Listen, listen. I. It's so annoying because it's like we're we're running out of time, and I could talk to you genuinely for like three more hours, but we we do have to get I'm, the recommendation. This is going to be so un unwoke, un like. I could. I was thinking about this, and I was like, I could be really edgy. You don't like, have to be edgy. Think of you know what I mean. I yeah. think of like this like like thing where it's like a POC or something, and like you know, give a platform to my peoples. But <laughs> you know, I really want. I'm just like I'm just like be political about it. But actually, I've, I think I've talked enough shit. So. Genuinely, not talk any shit. Um, Andrew Scott's Hamlet, my friend, makes me right. feel weird. It makes me feel ready. It makes me feel. It's that's it. Like, so right, so, right. and I think yeah. that that's and in terms of recommendation or a motivation or an inspiration, watch it. But when you watch it enjoy it, have it for yourself. But the thing about it is how this person who you've unfortunately had to listen to ramble for several minutes now becomes speechless with childlike wonder at, like, I'm obsessed with Shakespeare. I'm obsessed with, like, you know, old white man, maybe outdated, so much to unpack. Andrew Scott, older white man, maybe outdated, so much to unpack. (laughs) But... (laughs) I, it's the childlike wonder of watching someone change me. Mm. Fuck the optics. I'm a speech that makes me feel like that. Cool. And that's, and I think everyone's going to have one and it might come out in places that are a bit jarring like this one. But like, oh my God, the acting. Mm. Oh, him and just like watch his watch, guys. Watch his him. Watch. Yeah, him and his fondling of his watch. And <laughs> everyone is going to watch his watch. Watch his watch. Hashtag watch his watch, guys. I'm on Twitter. No, but genuinely, like, tell me what you think. It's the subtlety of something, and and luckily, and it is a stage production. And it's, it's on BBC, right? I um, think it's still there. I will. It might not be entirely there, but also I feel like Marquee, and there's a, a bunch of things that are doing right, their yeah, free yeah, 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 trials. Yes. yes. Um, I have to say, oh, I'm going to be arrested. But I, someone else actually, it wasn't even I didn't download it, but someone sent me a download. So I have it on my own computer, ladies and gentlemen. And occasionally I just open it at random and I'm just, I just watch a bit of a scene. Yeah. I do that. I do that loads with lots of different things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I and it's and it's just and I think what I'm giving you is not even the recommendation of something to see. It's the recommendation of a feeling that I hope you get. And that's the one. Yes. Be a child again, because yeah. children know how to play, and Absolutely. that is our job. Nadi Safi, thank <laughs> you very, You're very, welcome. very much. <laughs> this podcast is produced by me, Andy Sellers. Thank you for listening.